last few weeks, I uh, have been wrapped up in the craziness of this world. And I don't know if any of you all have, but things are just seem to be out of control crazy. You don't understand it because it just seems like everything's backwards from the way I was raised and backwards from uh, God's Word. Um, now, so I was reading a little bit in Isaiah this morning, and uh, one of the verses I pulled out of there was pretty condemning, but I also in reading this morning, I also realized that in Isaiah, it looks like the first, about the first half of the book is mostly about coming judgment and condemnation and, and telling people what they're doing wrong and how judgment is coming. And it seems like the second half is more about what God is doing to make that better to uh, for redemption. And he, he foretells about Jesus and many things in that later half. The, the thing that struck me, though, while I was studying was in Isaiah, in that first little bit, was he wasn't just talking about those crazies out there the ones that are doing everything backwards and the ones that are turning the world upside down, he was talking about the elect, the saved, the people who are already saved, that were drawn in from all the junk that's going on, that are desensitized, and they're accepting some of those things that are not true, some of those things that are immoral. Us. And it struck me kind of odd that I never realized that before, that I'm always looking with, in judgment at other people when I should be looking at myself also. Um, and now I start looking at things in my life and I try to lay it up against the Bible and figure out, hey, wait a minute, this may be a little shady here. And we don't, like, we don't want to paint ourselves with a bad brush. But the thing that, that uh, struck me the most was that the people that I look at sometimes I'm a little edge of that I'm, a, I'm part of that I'm part of that and I don't want to be that um, the Bible talks in many places about things that are happen that things that will happen that will get our attention my gosh the world's got my attention right now and we're not supposed to be part of that but since it's got of our attention, we need to be studying and paying attention to what the world is doing because we don't want to become part of it. And that's a hard thing to do in this world. It's just, the world is just so inviting. Once they invite you in and you take a part, then what do you do? You fall in. And it is totally opposite of God's Word. God's Word is the truth, 100%. Why do you think they're going after the Bible? Why do you think they're going after Christianity in schools and everywhere else? Because they can't tell you that this is the truth if you have something to measure it by. That measurement, they're trying to remove from everything. We're not supposed to hate them. We're supposed to pray for them. I have a hard time with that also. But if you think about some of the things that 
your life leads you to do and you see that you're just part of that. We need to concentrate more on banking our lives off this, the truth. Uh, I was going to read uh, Isaiah 5.20 was saying, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. He says, woe to those. Okay, He's not just talking about the bad people. He's talking about all people. Um, in 2 Timothy 4, 3, it says, For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They won't even listen to it. But they have itching ears, and, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Does anybody see that in this world today? We're not, we're so busy throwing out the good for the bad. If we're not doing that, fantastic. But there's a lot of us who are. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then it says, And such... We're some of you. He's talking to the saved people here, the elect. And such for some of you. But you, you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. What Jesus what God did was send the Son to die for us. That's our sanctification, our justification. If we, we, we weigh ourselves against what the world's doing, weigh it against this, and then start praying for those people who you don't understand. But if you weigh yourself the truth against this, then you're always going to know. Get in the Word. The word is full of truth. And if you get in there, you will find the error in the ways of man. They're pushing and trying to legislate immorality. There are so many things, but they can't force you out of God's hands. So, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us. The, the blessing that you've given, Lord, is unmeasurable. As we come to the altar today, Lord, I pray that we throw off the distractions and all the sin. And Lord, see this world as a broken world that you have a call to save, not that you have a call to divide. Lord, instead of putting those who we call our enemies off to the side in a category that means that they're unsavable. Lord, we're, to call, we're called to witness to those people. Continue to spread your word. 
Lord, uh, we can't save anybody. But you can command us to spread the word. And that word can plant seeds that only you can grow, Lord. We praise you for that. We praise you for Jesus willingly going to die for our sins. Lord, I can't imagine what that's like to give your own son. But Lord Jesus, willingly and unselfishly, knowing that he's going to carry the burden of the sin on his shoulders, Lord. Just praise you for that. We praise you for for everything he's done. As we, we do this this morning, I pray, Lord, that we remember the blood and the flesh that was torn and shed. Lord, I just pray that you put it in our hearts, Lord, to remember and, and continue to focus on your word, your truth, and measure this world up against it, Lord. All the false teachings will stand out like a sore thumb when we know the truth. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Communion tray set up on the four corners. And uh, right here on each one, we'll take communion. Well, good morning again. Good to be here today. And uh, if you have your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Or if you have version on your phone, uh, you can go to events and look for a Cornerstone Community Church, Nowata, and follow along on there. And uh, while you're turning there or getting onto version, I want to give everybody a little piece of advice. And you don't have to you don't have to do it, but it's just some advice I'd I'd like to give. You should travel. You should travel. You should travel as often as you can. Uh, and if you can only travel once a year, you should travel because traveling not only is it fun, but you learn a lot when you travel. And, and I know for a lot of people, you don't really have to travel anymore because you can just get on the internet and you can type in what you're looking for and see everything. But there's nothing like traveling. You you learn so much when you travel and you go to new places. And, you know, when I was growing up, we traveled. We traveled a lot. You can ask my parents. We were always, it seems like, going somewhere. Uh, whether it was in the summer, we would uh, go with my grandparents in their RV and we would go to different places. Uh, sometimes it was just a little few-day trip somewhere to visit family. Sometimes it was just a little weekend thing where we would just get in the car and we would drive. But you learn a lot when you travel. And it's funny, we would go to all these different places, but no matter where we would go, even if it was just to go to some antique store or something like that, we would always try to go somewhere that had some kind of history behind it. We would go to forts or battlefields or museums or, you know, uh, we would go to Mount Rushmore or Yellowstone, all these different places we would go to, and we would learn something when we traveled. There's just something about traveling. You, you learn new things. You learn about people. You should travel. And, and, you know, I think the reason I bring that up is because I've made it clear a lot that my favorite book in the New Testament is the book of Acts. 
And I love the story of this young church uh, coming together to share the gospel with people and, and all the things they went through. But I've got to be honest, the, the second half of the book of Acts is my favorite. I love that Paul and his companions are traveling, and I love that they're taking the gospel with them everywhere they go. And I love that when we read those stories, when we read those travels, when we read those things, we can learn a lot from watching them. We can learn a lot about what they did. We can learn a lot about the messages that they presented. We can learn a lot about how they handled adversity and trials. And when you look at them traveling, you can learn a lot from their travels. And this morning we're in Acts chapter 17, and Acts chapter 17 gives us some lessons to learn. It gives us some lessons to learn and some things that today is just as important as it was then. Matter of fact, I think the three lessons that we learned from Acts chapter 17 this morning are all things that are very applicable, very important to the world we are living in today. God is pretty great and God is pretty smart and it's funny, all these, these things we read in scriptures that seem like it was meant for a different people group in a different time can still apply to us today and we can still learn from them. And so this morning, we'll be in Acts 17, and we're going to start in verse 1. And there's, like I said, I think there's a few lessons that we can learn from Paul and his companions in this chapter this morning. So it starts in uh, 17 verse 1, and it says this, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So last week we were in Philippi in chapter 16, and now uh, we are seeing that he is continuing on his journey, and he stops through Amphipolis and Apollonia and comes into Thessalonica, and he does what is as his custom is, is to go into a Jewish synagogue. He gets there, and he spends time in the Jewish synagogue, and it says that on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them. Now, that would mean he spent three weeks in the synagogue. However, it's likely that Paul spent way more time than just three Sundays in Thessalonica. Uh, if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see that Paul in Thessalonica uses, or Thessalonica uses his ability as a tent maker to uh, make a living, to make some wages. Um, also, we see in Philippians 4 that Philippi gives him a number of gifts to help him. And it's likely he spent quite a bit of time in Thessalonica. But while he's there, at least three opportunities he has to go into the synagogue on Sabbath. And he reasons with them through the scripture. This idea for reason, this word reason means that he had conversation with them. He had dialogue with them. He asked them questions. And then it says that not only did he reason with them from the scriptures, he explained the scriptures to them. He would ask questions, they would answer, they would dialogue back and forth, and then he would explain the scriptures to them. 
And he proved to them from the scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. He was telling them, hey, there was a Messiah who has come, and this is why the Messiah has come. He came to die. The Messiah came to die. He had to die. He had to be that atoning sacrifice. He had to be that thing that would wipe away sin. You know, just going and, and sacrificing uh, animals, whatever, that wasn't cutting it anymore. It had to be bigger than that. It's something big had to happen for it to atone for everything, uh, for everyone. And so this Messiah had to come and he had to die. But more than just die, he had to raise from the grave. You see, Christianity is a resurrection belief because without the resurrection, death doesn't matter. Death doesn't matter without resurrection. And so there had to be resurrection. And so a Messiah came to die for the people, but not just die, but raise again. And so who was this? Who was this Messiah? Well, Paul tells him, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. This Jesus that I've been telling you about from Scripture, that I've been showing to you, this is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who was promised to come. He was the Messiah. He came, he lived, he died, he rose from the grave. And this message, this gospel message, entered their heart. And they, it says some of the Jews were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Some of the Jews who heard this message believed a lot of the God-fearing Greeks heard this message and believed. And it says quite a few prominent women. We don't know who these prominent women were or why they were prominent. All we know is that they were prominent. And we'll see Luke use this phrase twice in 17. And so this is great news, right? Like this is what we hope for when we share the gospel with people. We hope that they hear and we hope that they receive the gospel and we hope that they believe in Jesus Christ. That's our hope, right? That's something to celebrate when somebody hears the gospel and they believe. We should celebrate this. This is an amazing thing. But guess what happens in verse 5? It says, But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So there was something worth celebrating, but how quickly it turned. Some of the Jews who were there were jealous. And they were jealous because these were, poten or these were potential converts to Judaism. These were possible victories for the Jews. And because they don't get to convert these, now they're jealous. They're, they're upset that Paul and Silas have come in with this gospel and, and they don't get to be the ones to convert these Greeks. And so they become jealous. And I love how Luke words this. He says, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace you know, it makes me think of like, uh, 
I don't know, like one of those old gangster type movies or something where they're, you know, they rounded up a bunch of bad characters, you see, and they, that's, that's what it kind of makes me think of when I read that, but these were some bad people from the marketplace, and they rally them together, and they form a mob, and they start a riot in the city. And so they rush to Jason's house. We don't know a lot about Jason. This is the first time he appears, and he really only also appears in Romans. But that's it. That's the only two times we see Jason in such a name that fits when you read Scripture, right? Jason, out of all the names. But uh, they rush to Jason's house looking for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the crowd, but they don't find them there. And so Jason and the other believers are the next best thing. And they take them before the city officials, uh, also known as uh, politarchs uh, or city rulers, and uh, brings them before the city officials and say, these men have caused trouble all over the world, and now Jason and the other believers are, are taking them into his house. You know, they're, uh, they're taking these convicts, these criminals, and they're bringing them into their place, and, you know, they're helping these fugitives. And these people are also, they're saying that... that there's another king, one called Jesus. This is against Caesar's decree. There is no other king but Caesar. And they're saying that there is this man who's a king, and his name is Jesus. And they heard this, and uh, not only did these men have to probably give an answer to the crowd, or to the, the city officials, but also to the crowds. They would have to talk to the crowds, because in Thessalonica, they had a citizen body who was responsible for the legislative and judicial functions. And so not only were they talking to the city officials, but they also had to give an answer of what they were doing to the just the crowds in general. And we see that they're thrown into turmoil and they make Jason and the others post bond, and then they let him go. They make him post bond, and then they let him go. And so, reading through these first nine verses, here's the first lesson I think that we can take from this. Opposition will come. Opposition will come. I, I wish I didn't have to say it, but it's the truth that when you do what is right, when you stand for what is right, when you stand for what the Word of God says, there is a good possibility that you will face opposition. There's going to be opposition to that because your lifestyle in following Jesus Christ is so counterculture, so counteractive to the world that the world doesn't, they don't, they don't like it. The world doesn't like what you have to proclaim. The world doesn't like the way you live because you are so different than them and you are telling them how they should live and, and you should tell them how, you know, this is what Scripture says. And they don't want to hear that because what you have to say goes against the lifestyle that they want to live, the lifestyle that they choose to live. And what's so upsetting about these first nine verses is this. Sometimes the opposition won't just come from the world, but also from other believers. It's sad, but it's true. Sometimes opposition to the faith will come from other believers. And we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, how sometimes we have this tendency to put standards, extra standards, on people and, and tell them, well, you don't just have to believe, but you also have to live a certain way. You have to act a certain way. You have to, you have to you know, dress a certain way. And when I say act a certain way, live a certain way, dress a certain way, I'm not talking about in accordance to Scripture. I'm talking about in accordance to what we feel they ought to be doing how they ought to be living. Sometimes opposition will come 
not just from the world, but from other believers. Here the opposition came from the religious people. And so opposition will come. Know this, that when we do what is right, when we stick to the word, when we do what we know the truth tells us to do, sometimes opposition will come. And I don't know why sometimes this surprises us because Jesus told us this exact thing would happen. John chapter 15, 18 through 25 tells us this. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Jesus tells us if the world hates us, know that it hated him first. And so it makes sense. If we are standing to what is true, if we are doing what is right, there will be people who oppose us. And there will be people who tell us what we believe is wrong. It's fiction. It's fantasy. It's fairy tale. We shouldn't believe it. Just let them do what they want to do. Let them live the life that they want to live. Opposition will come. And so how should we respond in the face of opposition well i think we can remember one important thing it comes in proverbs 21 30 and 31 it says this there is no wisdom no insight no plan that can succeed against the lord the horse is made ready for the day of battle but victory rests with the lord know this that if you are facing opposition if you are facing people telling you that that you should just give up what you believe, it's not true, whatever. If you are facing opposition, know this, that no matter what wisdom they try to throw, no matter what insight they try to use, no matter what plans they try to bring against you, nothing can succeed against the Lord. Nothing can battle God. You know, they'll try, they'll try to battle against God, but nothing can beat God. He's won, he's got the victory Find optimism in that, that when opposition comes, no opposition can overthrow the Lord. And so, opposition comes, and now we see what happens next. In verse 10, it says, As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. And so night falls in Thessalonica, and they want to get Paul and Silas out of there, and so they send them out, and they send them to Berea. 
And when they arrive to Berea, they do what is as custom. They go to the Jewish synagogue. But what they encounter is much different than what they encountered in Thessalonica. The the Thessalonian Jews were not as accepting of the message. They were not as eager to hear the message as the Bereans were. They say that they were of more noble character and they received the message with great eagerness. They were excited to hear what Paul and Silas had to say. They were eager to hear the words that they would proclaim. And not only were they eager to hear the words, but they examined the scriptures every single day to see that what Paul said was true. They didn't just take what Paul said as gospel. They checked it in accordance to what the Old Testament was saying to back up, to, to say, hey, this is true. What he speaks is true. And because of this, it says many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So more Jews believed, more prominent Greek women believed, and many more Greek men believed. But, 13, but when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought, them, brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. The, the Jews in Thessalonica, they learn about Paul and this, they have this mob mentality. We're going to take these people and we're going to go now to Berea and we are going to follow him there and we are going to go after him there. The believers hear about this, they see this, and so they immediately sent Paul to the coast and they bring him over to Athens. And so again, they're preaching. People hear this as good news. They accept it. They believe, and then opposition comes. But here's the second lesson I think that we can take from this text this morning, and it's this. We need to be in the Word. We need to be in the Word Every single day, we need to be in the Word. We need to be making sure we are reading Scripture daily, soaking up Scripture daily, every day. You know, I appreciate what Ron said during communion meditation. It's true. If we are not living in this, how are we going to know what people say how, when we hear all these opinions, when we hear what people are throwing at us on social media? And then how do we know what is true if we are not in the truth? If we are not in God's word, how are we going to know what is right and wrong, what is fact and what's fiction? How are we going to know if we are not in the word? And it needs to be an everyday thing. If you are here, if this is the only day of the week that you are in God's word and you wonder, why is my faith so shaky? There's a reason for that. We need to be in the word daily. It tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We can teach it, we can rebuke through it, we can correct through it, we can train people through it. The answers that we're looking for are in God's word, and we need to be in God's word daily. And we need to let God's word guide us, as it says in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. We have to be in God's word daily. And more so than just being in God's word daily, we need to look at everything through the lens of Scripture. 
everything through the lens of Scripture, the decisions we make, the, the, the opinions we have, are they through the lens of Scripture? And are we using Scripture to make sure what we hear is true and right and accurate? And I'm going to say this this morning. If you Please don't ever just hear what I say, what Cody says, what Randall says, what any of the elders say, and just accept that as gospel. Check it to make sure it's true. Be in the Word. Make sure what we say is true, and if it is not, keep us accountable. We must be in the Word every day, making sure what we say is true. And I will say the same thing. Whoever, whatever other preachers you listen to, I listen to several preachers. Make sure that what they say is true according to Scripture. We must be in the Word, and we must follow the examples of the Bereans who checked everything to make sure it was true. And we can only do that if we are in the Word. And so we must be in the Word. So, trouble has come to Thessalonica, or they, so they think, and the Jews stir people up and push the apostles to Berea, and they're sharing the message in Berea, and then the Jews from Thessalonica come, and they stir things up, and they push them out of Berea, and now they go to Athens. And in verse 16, it says this, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Now, let's stop there for just a second. Uh, Athens is a very important place in history. Uh, a lot of you have probably heard of Athens at some point. It was the educational center of the world for the longest time. It was a place of uh, deep theological study and education and philosophical study. It was an important educational center. Now, by the time we get here in chapter 17, it's not as important or as popular as it used to be, but it was still a place where people would gather together and discuss ideas and thoughts and education, all this different stuff. And now when we see Paul here, it's full of idols. It's full of idols. And so what does he do? He goes to the synagogue and he reasons with them, with Jews and God-fearing Greeks, also in the marketplace day by day, uh, with those who happen to be there. And now we read about a group, or a couple of groups, an Epicurean and Stoic group, or groups. And these were groups of, uh, philosophers, uh, people who were uh, deep into philosophy. And so the first one is Epicurean. Now, Epicureans were named from a man named Epicurus. And they believed that the universe and all beings consisted of atoms, which were active only temporarily. They rejected any thoughts of life beyond this earth, and so their goal was pleasure. They didn't believe then in an afterlife. They believed that they were just atoms that were there temporarily, and when they died, they died, and that was it. And so their goal was to live for pleasure, live as though there is no tomorrow, and gratify yourself however you see fit, because you don't have to worry about it. Then there was the group of Stoics. Uh, they were founded by a philosopher named Zeno, and their belief in the logos, or universal reason, uh, was what they felt was the divine force which held the universe together, and it gave them confidence that life could be lived in harmony with nature. And so, really, what this all boils down to, the best way to explain this, is they were very pantheistic, 
And to say pantheistic, what that means is that everything is a God. Everything was a God or could be a God. Example, uh, everything and everyone is God and God is everything and everyone. So a tree is God. A rock is God. These chairs are God. This mic stand is God. All these things could be God in their mindset. And so they wanted to reason and talk and dialogue with Paul. And so we see in uh, the second part of verse 18, it says, Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And so they bring Paul to them, and they want to know, what is it that you are saying? What is it you're talking about? You are bringing some new things to us that we have never heard before. Please explain this to us. You know, they had this mindset that they wanted to hear the new ideas and they wanted to listen to the new ideas. And so they were brought before the Aeropagus. The Aeropagus was a group, as it says here, who sat around and they talked about these new ideas, these philosophers who talked about these new things that were making their way around. And so we see in 22, it says that Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Aeropagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant to the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. So Paul stands up at this meeting of the Areopagus, and the Areopagus could be two things. Here, it's talking about this group of philosophers who would you know, gather together and talk about the new ideas. The Areopagus was also a hill that was in Athens that a lot of people would stand upon to speak. And I think there's a picture on there somewhere. Yeah, this hill right here, this little uh, mountain-looking thing, this little hill where people are standing, that would be an area where people would overlook the city and they would proclaim whatever message, decrees, whatever they had to proclaim, they would do it from that hill but we see here that the Aeropagus is a group of people that he is talking to. And now he stands up and he's going to address them. And the very first thing he says to them is this. I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, this phrase here actually could be two different things when he says you are very religious. First of all, it could mean, it could be a compliment. You are very devoted to religious things. Or it could be a backhanded slap by saying, you know, you are superstitious or over-scrupulous. And so either way, he was either complimenting them or insulting them. We don't really know which one. It seems like he's kind of insulting them, as we'll see here in just a second. He says, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. There's a statue here. They're very religious. There's a statue here to an unknown God. And Paul calls them out for this. You have a statue that says to an unknown God, you are so 
ignorant of the things that you worship, that you have a statue to an unknown God. You worship this thing and you don't even know who he is. You don't know anything about him. You don't know who he is. You don't know where he came from. You know nothing about this God that you claim to worship. And he says, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to proclaim it to you. I'm going to proclaim to you who this God is. And so here is the next lesson I think we can learn from this. Know who you worship. Know who you worship. This morning, do you know who you worship? Because we come to church all over the world, and we sit and we praise God, and we thank God, but for so many people, we praise and we thank God, but to so many people, the God whom we profess, the God who we sing songs of praise to, to us is a statue of an unknown God. We sing songs to a God that we don't even really know. We know nothing about him. We don't spend time studying him. We don't spend time talking with him. We don't spend time thinking about him enough, but we're going to come and we're going to stand and we're going to say, I believe in God, but we don't really know him very well. How well do you know who you worship? And so, this morning, Paul proclaims who it is we should worship. And so, we are going to look at that in verse 24. It says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. So here is the first thing that we need to know about our God. He is creator. He is creator. The God we worship this morning, the God we, we sing praises to, the God we sing to, He is creator God. Everything that is in existence is in existence because of Him. Nothing is in existence that has not been made by Him. He is creator. He has put everything together. The reason you are here this morning is because God is creator. And, and so many people want to try to say that God is not creator, that God is not creator, that, that the world came out of nothingness and just was here, and this rock that we live on just came out of nothingness. It's so hard for me to believe that if, that if we just move barely, barely a smidge closer to the sun, we all burn up. And if we move a smidge, a smidge closer to the moon, we all freeze to death. What's the odds of that coming out of nothing? It makes no sense. And so we know that God is creator. Isaiah forty twenty eight tells us this. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. Isaiah 42.5 tells us this. This is what God the Lord says. The creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. Everything that you see, all the beauty you see is because God is creator. And Paul reminds him, God is creator, and not only is he creator, he doesn't live in buildings made by human hands. When we leave this morning, God doesn't stay here. We don't lock the door and God stay behind. No, God is outside of this building. It doesn't matter when we're here or when we're not. God is not confined by buildings, by human hands, and he is not, you know, he is not waiting, sitting there waiting, please just serve me. No, God does not need us 
to serve him. If you think about it, it says here, and he is not served by human's hand or human hands as if he is needed or as if he needed anything. As if he needed anything. He doesn't need anything. He's God. He creates everything. So what does it say next? What's the next thing it tells us? It says this uh, in verse 25. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So the next thing that Paul tells us is not only is the God we, we worship creator, he is also the giver of life. He's the giver of life. You can breathe this morning because God gives you life. When a child is born, it's because God gives life. He is life giver. He breathes into us life. Psalm 139, 13-16 tells us this, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God is the giver of life. Job 33, 4 tells us, The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. He is creator and he is life giver. What else is he? Well, it tells us this, From one man he made all of the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So, the next thing he is, is he's creator, he's life giver, he's also providential. And you might be wondering, what does that word mean? That's a big word, providential. Well, really, it's, it's really easy once, you, you, once I explain it. It's this, to be a providence means somebody who gives divine foresight or intervention. And so to say that God is providential means he is giver of divine foresight and intervention. That means that God has set everything according to his plan from the very beginning. Everything that we do, God already has foreseen what happens. God knows our future. God knows what happens with us in our lives because he is of divine foresight and intervention. An example of this comes in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Sometimes the good is not what we want, but sometimes the good is what is good for us. He has given us this, this because of his divine nature, his divine foresight, his divine intervention. Proverbs 21.1 tells us, In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. God is providential. He knows all things. He, desi- or he divines all things. He knows all of how our life is going to play out. He, he sets the boundaries. He knows all of these things. Because of who he is. He is divine in his foresight and his knowledge. And so what else is God? Well, it says in verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. 
And I think the thing here that we can see that He is, is that He is near to us. God is near to us. God is not sitting on this throne a thousand, thousand miles away, not paying attention to us. He's not hiding from us. He is near to us. Whenever we are struggling, whenever we are going through trials and we feel like God is nowhere to be seen, where God is not hearing a word I have to say, God is with us. God is near to us. He is here beside us. We struggle with this, I think, especially over the last couple of years. We think all the things that are happening around us, God, where are you? Our country is backwards or everything fills out of whack. God, where are you? I've lost family members. I've lost loved ones. God, where are you? God is near to us. Psalm 145.18 says this, The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call Him in truth. Psalm 119.151 tells us this, Yet you are near, Lord, and all your commands are true. Psalm 16.8 tells us this, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With Him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. God is near to us. He hears your prayers. He sees what you are going through and He is there with you. He knows everything that we've been going through. He sees all of these things. But please don't mistake this. He is near to us. We just have to ask We just have to reach out to Him. He is near. What else should we know about this God whom we worship? Verse 29, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Stop right there real quick. I I love this thing that, that Paul says here. Please don't think that the divine being in which I'm telling you about, this God whom you worship, please don't think he is an item that is made from gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. No, that doesn't even come close to who God is. This doesn't even come close to the beauty of God. This doesn't even come close to the majesty of God. No no thing made by human hands will ever compare to the God who created us all. And he says, please don't think this. No, in verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. The ignorance he's talking about is our, our sins, our, our mistakes, thinking that, you know, we'll be, a, you know, hey, it doesn't matter what I've done. It, it'll be all good. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. We, he overlooked ignorance because we didn't know any better. We didn't know that what we were doing was wrong. He didn't know that what we were, we didn't know. We needed to know. And so God sent His Son and He told us these things. He told us what was truth. He told us what was right, what was wrong. He told us these things. And so in the past, He overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so here's the last thing we need to know is that he calls us to repentance. There was a point in time where we didn't know any better. We didn't know that what we were doing was wrong. We didn't know that our sin was sin. We didn't know the mistakes we were making were mistakes. We didn't know these things. Now we have no excuse. 
Because we have God's word, we have his son who has, been risen, or who has risen from the dead. We know now that what we do is sinful. We know the mistakes we make are mistakes. We know these things now. And so we repent. We repent for he has set a day when he will judge the world. Someday you will stand before God and you have to give an account of the, the sins you've committed, the mistakes that you have made. And so now we need to repent we need to be repentant people. We need to make sure we come before God and we, re- we confess, we repent. Luke 5.32 tells us this, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Those are Jesus' words. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Repentance is needed. Proverbs 28.13 tells us this, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. What sins are you holding on to? Because if you are holding on to your sins, if you're holding on to these things that you've done wrong, you're not going to prosper. You are going to live with guilt that gnaws at you and eats at you. You are going to live with these things that, man, I have got to let, until you get to the point where you say, I have got to let these out. The one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. You don't have to hold on to your sins. You don't have to hold on to your mistakes. You can confess and you can repent and you can let them go to God. I think maybe our mindset should be that of David. And David says this in Psalm 38, 17 through 18. For I am about to fall and my pain is ever with me. I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. And... Does your sin trouble you? It should. The sins that we commit should trouble us. We should not want to hold on to those sins that we are holding on to. Instead, what we need to do is we need to come before God and we need to repent and we need to confess and we need to lay those things at the feet of God and find mercy there. What are you holding on to that you could let go of? And so... This is who God is. He's creator. He's life giver. He's providential. He is near to us. And he calls us to repent. So do you know who you worship this morning? Do you know the God that you serve? Do you know the God that you sing songs to? Do you know the God that you pray to? Or to you is God just an unknown statue? And here's how 17 finishes up, wraps up. He says this, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. What's kind of amazing to me is when you read a lot of commentators, a lot of people seem to have the thought that Paul's time in Athens was a failure. Because you don't see a large number of converts like you do in Thessalonica or Berea. You don't see a a large number of people coming to repentance. And so people believe that maybe Paul's time spent in Athens was a failure, which I don't think is the case because he got an opportunity to share the gospel. And think about this, he wasn't kicked out. So that there is a victory, right? But look what happened. Because of what he proclaimed, even if it wasn't everybody, some of the people became followers and believed, including a member of the Areopagus, 
a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And we have an obligation to proclaim the gospel no matter what opposition comes, no matter what happens around us, because even if it seems like nobody hears what we say, no matter if it seems like, man, I have been trying and trying and trying and trying and trying, and I see no outcome from this friend I've been talking to, that doesn't mean it will never happen. Sometimes you plant the seed and that's it. Sometimes you will never see the fruit of that until you get to heaven. That's the truth. Sometimes you're meant to plant the seed. Others are meant to water it. God makes it grow. But man, Paul's time here in Athens shouldn't be seen as a failure because people came to believe. Even if it's just one, one lost soul who comes to be a believer, that's an amazing thing. And so... Remember that there will be time when people try to stand against what you have to say. You'll try and you'll try and you'll try and people will just oppose you at every turn. They don't want to change their life because what they are doing is a good thing for them. They're pursuing pleasure. They're pursuing things that will leave them eventually wanting for more. But they will oppose you at every single turn. Remember that God has the victory. Remember to be in the Word every single day. How can you know what is true if you are not in the Word? You have to be in the Word, and it can't just be on Sundays or Wednesdays or Mondays or whatever night you're here. It can't just be a a couple-a-day thing. It has to be every single day. And do you know who it is you worship this morning? Do you come here and you praise God and you sing songs to God and you, you do all these things for God and but yet to, to you God seems to be just an unknown God, an altar, a statue that you know nothing about. Remember, he is creator. He has put everything in its, in its place. Everything that is here is because God is creator. He is giver of life. You breathe this morning because God is giver of life. He is providential. He knows every step you take. He knows every single thing you do because He is divine in His foresight. He's near to you. When it feels like God is a thousand miles away, He is right there next to you. And He calls you to repent. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up this morning. And as they do, what are you holding on to this morning? What sins, what mistakes, what things are you holding on to that you just need to give it up to God? We have so many reasons to be thankful this morning as we approach Thanksgiving, but the greatest thing we have to be thankful for is that God sent His Son to die for you. He died for you so that you can be forgiven, so that you can have eternal life. That is the ultimate Thanksgiving gift. And so what do you need to let go of this morning? Maybe you have something that you've been hiding from God, hiding from the world, thinking, man, I, I don't want God to, to know this. I don't want God to see. God already knows. And so give it to him. Lay it at his feet. Repent. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And so maybe this morning you need to spend some time praying. You need to spend some time where you're at just giving these things to God. Or maybe you need to come up here and and spend some time in prayer. I'd love to pray with you. If you need to come up here and, and just let that all go to God, do so. Or maybe this morning you've never followed him. And so to you, really, God is in a, a statue of an unknown God. 
And this morning you need to know the real God, the real creator God who creates and, and gives life and is near to us. If you don't know that God, I pray that you would do so today. But if you have a decision to make this morning, I pray that you would do so as we stand and we sing. Take all I have in these hands and multiply. God, all that I am and find my heart on the altar again. Set me on fire. Set me on fire. Sing that again. Take all I have in these hands and multiply. God, all that I am and find my heart on the altar again. Set me on fire. Set me on fire. Here I am, God. <laughs> 